All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Kristen Tripp. I'm the director of the art history program here at Trinity, where I teach early modern art, architecture, and urbanism. Um, I'd like to welcome you to the special event, which was co-sponsored by the Art History Department and Trinity Center for Urban and Global Studies, in association with the Connecticut Historical Society. Tonight's lecture by noted architect and urban planner Patrick Pinnell grew out of the material for the freshman seminar I'm teaching um, in Trinity's uh, Studies program, and there are quite a few students out there, so good for you for making it tonight. Um, as a means of connecting with the current exhibitions and programming at the Connecticut Historical Society, uh, uh, which, is, which are centered on Hartford's, essentially Hartford's post-urban renewal legacy. Um, these exhibitions include Hartford's Scene, a collection of photographs by Trinity faculty member Pablo Delano, who's here with us in the audience tonight, and also Rebuilding Hartford, um, the re in parentheses, a city captured by artist Richard Welling, um, which, and this exhibition, this later one, uses the extraordinary ink drawings of Connecticut artist and local celebrity Richard Welling as a means of documenting, exploring, and occasionally lamenting the effects of mid-20th century urban renewal in Hartford. Um, I was involved in the planning process for this exhibition, whose design and installation was overseen by Andrea Rapaz at CHS, and I can tell you that it is an eye-opening uh, look at Hartford's transformation as projects like Constitution Plaza, Civic Center, and the potential ballpark in the city's north end, uh, coming up quickly down the pike, and many others uh, resulted in the demolition and rebuilding of vast portions of the city's existing urban fabric. That story and its legacy are the topic of tonight's lecture and what I hope will be a very animated public discussion after the lecture. Tonight's speaker is an architect, planner, author, and educator with his office in the Lower Connecticut River Valley, down in Hagenham, right? He graduated from Yale uh, originally with a degree of, in English literature and obtained his graduate degree in architecture from Yale as well. In addition to being an award-winning architect with an extensive portfolio of residential, commercial, and institutional projects, most recently um, 17 um, actors housing units, uh, little, little actors houses in um, the historic district near the Goodspeed Opera, houses, Opera House. Um, but Patrick has worked uh, also extensively in the town and city planning sector, which is actually where I knew him from when I first met him years ago. From the innovative urban and architectural codes associated with Seaside and the new urbanism, um, to the planning of Hartford's downtown and greater metropolitan air, uh, region. He also helped save Fenway Park, so we should give him all really a big round of applause for that. No, Yan no Yankee fans here. No. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna keep quiet. Mm. Um, Patrick served for several years as vice chairman, or vice czar, perhaps I should say, of the Hartford Parking Authority, so he knows the issues. And after tonight, you will too. Now, before I let you take the stage, um, I'm just going to mention that we have a lovely reception organized uh, by uh, my second-in-command here, Judy Gilligan, um, next door in the Dangramont Commons, what used to be Gallows Hill, and I hope you will all join us after the lecture. So without further ado, Patrick Pinnell. Thank you. Thanks, Kristen. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out on a, on a cold night. Uh, 
I, I will be quick here. Um, one of my favorite lines uh, from uh, Shakespeare is Macbeth's, uh, if tis to be done, tis better if twere done quickly. Now he was talking about murder, um, but there may be something in common between considerations of city planning and um, uh, drama. Let's just leave it at, at, uh, at that. Uh, I can also promise you that um, I uh, will go quickly. Uh, this should take about 40 minutes and give us 20 minutes or so to, uh, uh, or however long you'd like, um, talk about some of the things that I've said or some of the things that I've not said. There, even um, given the time available, there's really not enough to um, go after all of the interesting things that are going on or sometimes not going on in, in Hartford. Now, I apologize to, uh, I'm going to read this, but I thought that anything that was associated with Trinity and with the uh, Connecticut Historical Society probably ought to have um, uh, a script that's a little bit more disciplined than what I often follow uh, when I'm up on uh, a podium and, and behind a lectern and given a microphone. So uh, with that, um, I'm going to talk, the, the title of the talk is Hartford, the Game Board in Perspective and in Speculation. I'll begin elliptically. Here's an image seemingly out of far left field or right field, depending upon your red or blue preferences. Both major political parties now concoct this sort of thing. Following on the elections earlier this month, there has been a lot of discussion of gerrymandering, which has produced, increasingly produced safe congressional districts with consequences for the operation, or more, or more accurately, non-operation of our politics. Now, no matter whether you come down, where you come down on that argument, you will almost certainly have to agree on one thing. Such allocations have nothing to do with a sense of place and very little to do um, with a genuinely coherent sense of community. By the way, please note that this is not two districts, but one, the Illinois 4th Congressional District, as it currently stands. What you see is ger in gerrymandered districts like this one in Chicago are not knitted communities, in definable places, but statistical but statistical stock pens. I choose the Chicago analogy deliberately. The individuals fenced around by such boundaries are not treated thereby as people, but as census categories. I show this one example of a more general pattern. It seems to me that we've drifted into treating the world and our lives in it abstractly. By abstractly, I simply mean not paying much attention to the visible, sensible shape of things and places we experience. Coming out of that premise is my thesis for this talk. Since we're at a college, I have to make a thesis. That just because we abstract the world and lose sight, literally, of aspects of it, does not mean they don't still affect us, even powerfully affect us. For the immediate purpose of this talk, understanding better what Hartford is and what might be its potential, I'm using the analogy of a game board. The physical facts, factors we generally no longer see uh, are the invisible rules of the game, affecting possibilities and possible outcomes even if we're not aware of them, and that, uh, and that I hope, is in this talk, 
to alert you to some of these physical factors uh, and help you first consider when something about Hartford uh, is under discussion, what forces may be prior to current particularities, prior to the specifics of any given project. What about a new ballpark? What about the absorption rate for new downtown housing? What about a potentially failing flood protection system? Beforehand, with each issue, what might be hidden in plain sight? My overall purpose, furthermore, larger and longer than the consideration of Hartford plans, is to suggest that things often don't actually move as quickly as it often seems to us. That there are factors of inertia in our places and in our, our planning uh, that we should be aware of uh, beyond the everyday urgency, uh, even emergencies that, of, our, of our lives. So let me give you a couple of concrete examples. I'll go over these two, uh, then dolly backward to look at Connecticut-wide factors at work on Hartford's past and future, then reverse the movement and come back down to the city uh, via a discussion of the Hartford region. Last, I'll look at a couple of proposed specific projects and speculate on PBIs, partly baked ideas, um, which might stimulate discussion or at least set off your sense of humor a little bit. That will be the overall movement of the talk. To begin, I would like you to understand that quite literally, we do not, indeed cannot, see and experience Connecticut in the same ways the state's inhabitants if even 60 years ago still could. There are two, that, that's a radical claim, but I, I think I can back it up. There are two causes of that change. The first is the continued decline of agriculture in the state, say, since 1950, and the rise during that period of suburbanization. Here is a 1952 U.S. Geological Survey map of a part of South Hartford and East Hartford along the Connecticut River. Toggle back. Um, I'll go back and forth between that and a current aerial, and you will see how much former agricultural land has been given over to the American dream of the single-family house. You can see where the houses are, where the streets are in this, versus this contemporary Google image. More to my dumb point, the number of trees has enormously increased. The 1952 map shows tree cover in light green. See how little of it there is there 60 years ago versus here. So that today you cannot quite literally see the shape of the, of the topography or over to the river in the way you could as recently as 60 years ago. The distinction is even stronger if you go back to the heyday of farming in, in New England in the early 19th century. Here's a drawing of East Haddam Landing, where I, I put the Goodspeed Actor housing cottages that Kristen mentioned, uh, by John Warner Barber from the mid-1830s, which is just after the peak of um, uh, New England agriculture. Look at the tree-bare farmed hills looming above the place where the Goodspeed Opera now perches like a steamboat run happily aground. In fact, Connecticut in 1820 was only 25% tree covered. Today, the figure is 
uh, statewide. Well, uh, here's the uh, the same location today, obviously seen from from higher up. All those hills uh, formerly cleared are now covered with trees. Today, the figure is 60% statewide, with Litchfield County at 75% tree covered. Another route to appreciating the changes in the land is to find a copy of the 1935 Connecticut Guide, um, published by the Federal Emergency Relief Commission, later known as the WPA. Not only does it meticulously give great guidance about the structure of towns and the historic structures present in each, it systematically notes where wide vistas looked out over the landscape were to be found. It is as though seeing the shape of things and visiting historical su survivals were thought of as life rafts reassuring people in the Depression's stormy seas. Whatever the instinct behind it, the vistas are described today in more cases than not when you try to find them between what's written about in 1935 and now. The vistas have been obscured by new construction and 80 years of reforestation. Connecticut, in a funny way, is invisible to us now in a way that it was not 60 and 80 years ago. Why should this matter? It's my belief, perhaps more accurate to, to call it a superstition, that when people know where they are, they know a little bit better who they are. Whatever else it, it was, the drive to suburbanize the country after World War II was a dream of both ownership and of isolation from codependence on other people. It is interesting to see how clearly uh, some people at the time understood and welcomed that. Here's a uh, quite brilliantly concise pair of diagrams from a popular magazine of the early 1950s. I think it was McCall's. Uh, the streets and blocks grid of the boring old traditional town above, the new American dream suburban house below. In the old way above, various individuals of various ages and capacities walk out to use uh, various shared community institutions. So if you look, it's a little small, but you can see coming out from home, there's a young woman walking alone to a movie theater. There's a couple going out to the dance hall. There's an old geezer with a cane walking out to listen to the bandshell music. And Junior is walking out to the old, to the old swimming hole. In the new American dream house below, each communal institution is replaced by a private feature or machine. Uh, the cinema by the television, the swimming hole by the, by the swimming pool, uh, and so on. Residents in the old neighborhood are bound there by their pedestrian status. The occupants of the dream, which is not uh, accidentally shown uh, without neighbors or context, you know, this isn't a town, this is a house, uh, are free to drive their MGB, clearly his, uh, Nash Rambler, hers, um, or these days, I suppose, your nomadic VW Touareg luxury SUV, wherever they want. That, of course, is another force for abstracting the world. 
when all you have to do to go uphill is press a pedal, uh, muscular kinesthetic learning about the, the land shape of your place is short-circuited. Laying out highways with less regard for actual hills and valleys than for um, roadway geometrics, uh, the engineering regimen of the interstate system and onward, uh, now globalized, only compounded the uh, abstraction. If you look closely, um, while the right-hand slide here is a U.S. standard, as it says, look closely and you can see that's Arabic. This is the world now. The geometric standards of alignment, radii, whatever, of the traffic engineering profession are ubiquitous, which by definition means that place is dampened down, if not completely um, uh, <laughs> eradicated. Um, back to the contemporary aerial photograph. Um, farmland turned into suburbia. The trees are there not to replace the former sweet corn field so much as to shade, sure, but also to isolate the houses and the people in them. Now, I'm not going to be quite so foolish, at, at, I'll be foolish, but not so foolish as to suggest that the ways to halt the, the rash of Connecticut sur suburban towns irritably rejecting their proposed budget is to cut down all the trees so residents could see each other better. A uh, little bit extreme. Urban, suburban, or rural locations, though, I will argue that you could not produce general acceptance of the kind of gerrymandering in my first slide without a general changeover to considering voting individuals and households in abstracted isolation from their physical places. The fact of American suburbanization has now changed, or at least come along at the same time as, the general abstractionist mindset changing the invisible rules of the game in the real physical places wherever they are, wherever we are. Could things be done more concretely in this sort of question, if you accept my characterization of the issue as, as excessive abstraction, but still with some one person, one vote, equal justice, which is the ostensible logic for such redistricting? Three years ago, uh, when post-2010 post census redistricting was a hot issue in Connecticut, I wrote an op-ed for The Current, which Tom Condon, who is kind enough to be here, not laughing in the, in the second row, but smiling, um, was indulgent enough to publish. I noticed uh, in 2010, when redistricting was a, a big topic, that the state has five congressional districts and, co coincidentally, five major regional drainage basins, and suggested that the obvious thing to do was simply make the district boundaries coincide with the drainage basins. It's easy enough to make the districts equal in population simply by flipping the hilltop towns, um, the ones straddling ridgelines and falling into two different drainage basins, to whichever the, the two sides needed more population to reach the requisite 714,800. Here's a graphic of what could have been the, the situation in 2011. See, these are the major regional drainage basins. These were the people sitting in Congress at the time that I um, made the modest proposal. 
Um, oddly enough, I didn't receive a call from the governor. <laughs> oddly enough, there were no calls from the Democratic or Republican state chairs. Um, I, I guess that um, politicians like to um, deal with politics and not with something that you can't gerrymander like a drop of water. You can't lobby a drop of water to go where it wants to go. My general point is, uh, in this instance, if the objective physical basis were adopted for representative apportionment, the rules of the game, back to my overall metaphor, uh, would be more visible and comprehensible. I contend that would be a good thing. People would know better who their real neighbors are. Being uphill and downhill, upstream and downstream, historically have had definite consequences and could again if we could become less abstracted more consistently. And to more physically entwining political consciousness with the natural and built environment could only be healthier. My second concrete example of forces hidden in plain sight takes us back to Hartford itself and is blatantly swiped from Jared Edwards, who is right up here. Um, uh, though, I, though, though I will extend and perhaps overextend his argument a bit. Uh, Jared is also uh, the author of the uh, Hartford Build, Fourth Build Observation, uh, to which Kristen uh, referred, uh, the common ground of the three current CHS exhibitions among uh, many other uh, historic and urbanistic insights. Jared has noted that Hartford, from its founding in 1635, was oriented towards the Connecticut River, which Reverend Thomas Hooker and his band had crossed, forded, Hart Ford, in 1636. Here is a 300 year later, um, 1940, Army Corps of Engineers chart of river depths. Uh, that's Hartford on the left in 1940. And you may not quite be able to see it, but uh, what is shown here is the river channel with the depths in feet down to where you can and can't uh, take boats of various varieties. You can see the island and set of broad bars uh, noted only three feet down right up here. Um, just above what was the major bridge, this is a railway bridge, uh, across to, uh, between East Hartford and Hartford uh, in that year. Um, this is uh, now the Bulkley Bridge over which I-84 crosses. The Connecticut was crossed here and the city founded here on the western concave scour side of the current, uh, not, because, not just because it was convenient to keep things drier uh, in the crossing, but because Reverend Hooker and his band knew this to be the head of navigation of the Connecticut River, the furthest upstream ships of any appreciable working size could go. I'll return to that condition and its significance uh, in just a bit. For now, it will suffice to say that Hartford faced east to the river because of the river. By the way, it's, it's interesting to note uh, that almost always cities on rivers are founded on the concave side of things. The simple reason is that if you've got docks, the river current keeps the silt from, from uh, clogging up the docks. You know, just There are physical factors beyond a lot of what seem abstract decisions to us, but are 
ancestors were at least as smart as we are about how those physical factors affect the places where you live. In 1796, the city of Hartford built what's now called the Old State House downtown. Um, I hope all the Trinity students have a chance to, uh, to visit this. The then spanking new state of Connecticut um, retained the old colonial arrangement dating from 1662 of alternating General Assembly sessions between rivalrous Hartford and New Haven. The Hartford building was just one more entry in a series of escalating architectural trumpings, each city of the other, um, each building one more elaborate capital than the other, uh, until actually late in the 19th century. Looking at the east and west sides of the old state house, it's easy to see uh, with its tall, expensive columns uh, and larger porch that the riverfront was the ceremonial side. This was the state house's real front door, not where most of the time people enter it now from, from Main Street, which is here. By extension, it was the front door of the city. Now, railway service between New Haven and Hartford began in December 1839. The first line uh, swung in from the west. Okay, this is north here. Uh, rail line came up from New Haven down this direction and swung in here. This is what's now Bushnell Park, though it wasn't called that by that point. Um, and set its terminal on Mulberry Street, uh, not the originally intended main street, since that was deemed by the uh, leading citizens to create too great a disturbance aesthetically and in terms of what steam engines would cause horses to do. But the railroad retreated from that marshy ground to build a grand station in 1849 on the site of the present Union Station as shown in this map from 1850. In effect, with the station now on the west, what had formerly been the untidy back door of the city announced that it instead was going to be the city's front door. Well, what were basically transportation wars between the river traffic and the railway traffic would continue for a half century and more, two projects showed that the city's mindset had been changed. The psychology of what was the front door and the back door of the city were changed by the intrusion of the new railway station. Four years later, in 1854, um, Hartford citizens voted in a referendum to spend city funds for a municipal park, of course, eventually, uh, and now Bushnell Park. Uh, this is a, I'm doing a set of, um, I didn't mention this to Kristen, but um, I'm doing a whole set of um, commemorative stone ornaments for a set of new Yale uh, buildings, and I, I managed to sneak in some ornaments symbolizing trends in Yale and New Haven and Connecticut planning. This is Bushnell Park um, with the previous site of um, Trinity College there with the, the river, and a pomegranate, which is, of course, the old symbol of um, uh, the return of spring and the kind of cycles of the season uh, and a symbol of abundance. So it, it's a kind of symbol for what the the city was hoping for in the advent of Bushnell Park and the new train station and the new, relatively new Trinity College at that, at that point. 
Um, Uh, in 18, okay, second, in 1878, Hartford, having at long last in 1873 won by uh, another referendum the competition with New Haven to be the sole capital of the state, and having bought the site from Trinity College, built, Connecticut, Connecticut built the new state house here at the capital that we know today. The building re which remains our state house, of course, directly faces the train station. Uh, that's not an accident. Having definitively lost the um, capital arms race, New Haven, in a fit of pique, tore down its own last perfectly good state house, a beautiful 1827 to 1831 uh, Greek revival design by um, Ithiel Town, who did two of the three churches on the, uh, on the New Haven Green. It stood on the upper green uh, between Center Church and Yale's Phelps Hall. Hartford, on the other hand, eventually tore down a good part of itself, not its Capitol building, certainly the entirety of what had, be, what had been its civic front door, the riverfront and the Front Street neighborhood, in favor of what was called in planning documents at the time the Dyke Highway. We know it now as I-91. Riverfront Recapture has spent 30 years now helping Hartford recover some partial sense of its former front door. No criticism whatever of that riverfront recapture effort. It has been heroic. But what is notably unrecaptured is the reason for Hartford being where it was put in the first place. Let me explain now what I mean by that and use it as a transition into what I promised at the outset, a discussion from larger to smaller scale of some more hidden forces uh, behind the game board of Hartford. I mentioned earlier that in 1636, Thomas Hooker's group of colonists traveled some branch of what's called the Old Connecticut Path from Cambridge, Massachusetts to what became Hartford, crossing the Connecticut River over the shallows at the head of navigation. Here's Hartford, Boston is up, Boston, Cambridge up over that direction. Of course the Ford, um, crossing the Connecticut River over the shallows at the head of navigation. Of course the ford was known to Native Americans, but the English Puritans most likely would have had something beyond the shallow crossing in mind when founding the settlement that became Hartford. There is a millennia-old pattern uh, which pairs up human settlements, eventually, city, eventually becoming cities, in two types of locations on rivers, one at the head of navigation or the, the lowest crossing point uh, acts as a collection and distribution center. Because people naturally cross at that point, they do their trading at that, at that point. The other, connected to the first by the river, acts as a port for shipping products out of and into the, into the general river region. Uh, in extreme instances, you know, if this is an ocean down here, the type of vessel that's suited to bringing stuff from the head of navigation down to the port is too small or too shallow bottom or too something to go, to go out into the ocean. Uh, it's really a, a, um, a pairing that's conditioned by the technology of shipping and by the geography of these two kinds of places. Uh, 
if you start looking at maps, you will see these um, fairly consistently uh, across history and around the world. Um, in Connecticut, uh, Norwich uh, on the Thames River has worked with New London that direction. Um, in Germany, um, Mainz, where uh, Gutenberg set up the first movable type printing press on the Rhine, is the head of navigation that worked with the various what are now Dutch settlements at the mouth of the of the Rhine. Um, uh, Richmond and Norfolk, Virginia, are such an historically significant pair. For example, sharing the James River, that pairing and their river are really the axis around which, among other events, uh, tip of the hat to Ron Spencer here, the Civil War turned. But those are other stories. Now, take a look at what became Connecticut here in a New England map of 1675. The course of the river is there with Hartford on the river. Um, here, the Windsor, Hartford, and uh, Wethersfield. Um, there's the Connecticut River. Um, in New Haven, which is not on the river, down here, already marked, the two cities were founded within a few years of each other in the 1630s, there was seemingly not the possibility that they could have become such a head of navigation and port partnership pair. But here's the strange thing. Looking at a map of state geology, the two cities are in fact both in the Central Valley of Connecticut. There's the Central Valley, the Western Uplands, the Eastern Uplands. This is, properly speaking, the Connecticut Valley. Uh, Hartford is here, New Haven down here. You notice that it's the same swath of yellow that, that connects the two geologically. The two cities are, in fact, both in the Central Valley of Connecticut. The one-sentence explanation of a geologically very complicated story involving bouncing tectonic plates is that the Connecticut Valley was not made by the Connecticut River. The river is a secondary feature pushed around over the eons by more powerful forces to the point that just below what is now Middletown, here, The river actually cuts through what looks to be, but is not, its own valley wall and into the hard rock, nice and schist, uh, to the southeast for the rest of the route down to Long Island, uh, long, down to Long Island Sound, with Old Saybrook at the mouth. You see the way that um, the river comes down uh, and bing, cuts through the valley wall. Once you, once you notice this, when you're driving around the state, you can really begin to, to, to sense Ooh, something, something different is happening here. We're in the flatlands, relatively speaking, down here uh, in Hartford, but with these ridges, which were made by much later upwellings, the, the brownstone on which Trinity sits, were much later upwellings after the tectonic plates had, had bounced, separated, and left a kind of weakened, flattened um, central valley. No disres disrespect to that wonderful old town of Old Saybrook, but it is too puny to have served as a, port, uh, as a port part of a classic city pair with Hartford. The Connecticut is the only major East Coast river without a city at its mouth, the reason for which absence is not hard to find. Um, 
Another 1940 Army Corps of Engineers map shows there's a thick set of sandbars at the mouth. Again, you probably can't read the, the numbers here, but um, um, uh, because of the accidents of currents in Long Island Sound and the uh, glaciers and what they left in Connecticut, it's not a good place for a port. And uh, that kept what was probably in the minds of Hooker and company from happening when, when the city of Hartford was, was founded. It was going to have a mate in their, in their mind's eye down here at the mouth of the river. The upshot is that Hooker and company's hopes of planning a city which could become a major New England center of concentration and distribution were doomed from the start by the geological fates. And the hidden tale gets worse. Here's a much simplified map of the same overall Connecticut geological situation. On it, I've marked in red the state's two great river anomalies. The first I mentioned, the Connecticut coming down and cutting through its own valley wall uh, here in uh, south of Middletown. Uh, the second is the way that the Farmington River comes down out of the northwest hills, da -da 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 -da, hits Rattlesnake Mountain in Farmington and bounces, flowing northward the only major river in the state that, that does that, or even minor, there are a couple minor rivers up here but, but do that, but it's weird. Um, flows north eventually to join the Connecticut at Windsor. It's the only northward flowing section of a major river in the state. Here's a detail of that situation. Um, here's the river coming down. You can see Rattlesnake Mountain. Boom, heads north. Um, back to the whole state level. So Hartford has a, a nice long river and a good catchment area, but no port, while New Haven has a good harbor, but only a very short river. You know, Quinnipiac, or, sorry, Quinnipiac dies out down here. Connecticut diverts. So, of course, it occurred in the 19th century to the enterprising citizens of New Haven to steal a march on Hartford by cutting their own artificial waterway, the Farmington Canal, up the backside of the Central Valley's trap rock ridges to catch the north-flowing Farmington, cut a canal up to there, catch the river, get a free ride north, then continue on up to Northampton, almost to the Connecticut, almost on the Connecticut, but north of Hartford. In effect, the canal made an artificial head of navigation, Port City Pair, out of Northampton, right up here, and New Haven. The checkered subsequent history of the canal, then of the Canal Railway, which in turn ran on its bed, are well known. Among other sidebars, it accounts for the long historic romantic pairing, not city pairing, of uh, Yale College, male, uh, and female Smith College. Uh, transportationally based uh, on the unromantic, in fact, hard-eyed situation of still another kind of rivalry between New Haven and Hartford. To sum up, not only did geology frustrate the creation in Connecticut of the time-tested paired river cities model for creating regional cooperation and prosperity, the same geology created a pair of actively rival cities. 
I'll point out just one more influential but generally unnoticed regional fact uh, on the ground, left over from the, our geographic situation, from the geographic situation and relations of Hartford and New Haven, then moved to focus uh, only on the immediate Hartford region and Hartford proper. As mentioned, railway service uh, between the two cities began late in 1839. The timing is significant for our heritage and possibilities today. This is a contemporary railway uh, map of Connecticut. The fastest way to get from Hartford to New Haven or Boston was to, in, in 1839 was to take a steam packet, like that one, which was the SS Hartford, down the river and either along Long Island Sound to New York, or you could bounce over to Stonington here, and because the, the railway went inland and didn't have to cross all the kind of corrugations that it would along the Connecticut shoreline, you could take an inland route already to, to Boston. Um, in planning possible routes, therefore, for the railway between New Haven and Hartford, uh, a process which was under the direction of uh, Yale engineering professor Alexander Twining, the idea of swiping the passenger traffic from the, from the steam packets uh, was foregone early on. They decided the railway couldn't compete with the steam packets. Instead, the alignment and geometrics were chosen to hit established business and nascent industrial corridors. In other words, the rail line between New Haven and Hartford was designed to carry long, slow-moving freight trains, not faster, shorter passenger trains. So when you read today uh, about the advent of a quote-unquote high-speed rail corridor from New Haven via Hartford up to Springfield, <coughs> and the state and the feds are spending a lot of money on that, keep in mind, well, high-speed is a relative term. The basic late 1830s genetics of the track locations and the curves pretty much precludes anything even, dis even distantly like the Shinkansen or the TGV. Uh, short of Connecticut mustering the political will for the judicial takings involved in completely new, straightened rail lines to New York and Boston, Hartford cannot look to truly high-speed rail connection to those cities for development juice and cool factor. Until that will is mustered, there is no point in thinking it can be accomplished no matter how much money is spent. Let me now begin to zoom in. At long last, I, I think I hear some of you thinking. Uh, here's the Hartford region from Windsor up at the north. I'm sure this is not really legible to you. Uh, Windsor on the north, where the Farmington River is coming in, down to about um, uh, Rocky Hill on the south, and from the West Valley Wall, uh, this is West Hartford here, over to Bolton Notch, the East Valley Wall here. Um, it's about 18 miles uh, across. Uh, with a little extra, uh, it's, a, it's a shot of the 18-mile width of the Connecticut Valley at the latitude of Hartford. Here's a map uh, comprising the Capital Regional Council of Governments. Historically, uh, the basis of unity in the capital region, if any, was the economic centrality of Hartford in a hub and spokes historic central region, uh, historic regional roads arrangement, which federal and CTDOT highway planners for a while tried to extend and quote unquote rationalize. Uh, this is a map of all the, the interstate level highways which were planned for the Hartford region. Um, uh, 
We know how well that worked. Here's a map showing existing limited access highways, which are colored in uh, stubs of proposed limited access highways, and the grayed out ghosts of others which died on the drawing boards. It's really a map not just of local resistance battles and of budget limitations, but first and foremost of the ambivalence both ways between the city of Hartford and the towns of the region. There's no point in emphasizing that since everyone is all too aware of it. It is worth knowing the magnitude of the issue, the planning issue, um, just so we know what we're up against. Um, I didn't have time to look up the current statistics, but the last time I did, the Hartford SMSA, Standard Metropolitan Statistical Area, it's a, it's a kind of nerd census term uh, that's, that's used in planning. Um, the Hartford SMSA had the smallest core population and the poorest poor core population relative to perimeter population of any comparably sized SMSA. By that measure, the delamination between center and surroundings, uh, between Hartford, the city proper, uh, and the perimeter towns, the centrifugal force tending to make things fly apart is as great or greater than anywhere else in the entire country. It's worth soaking that, that up to realize what the magnitude is of the issues that we've got here. That's why the first ring towns around the city of Hartford, West Hartford, Glastonbury, Windsor, East Hartford, are seeing unsubsidized construction projects, while in Hartford, all that's being built is state subsidized. All the new apartments downtown um, are getting a cut to make them be financially feasible. That's why Hartford's mill rate is the highest in the state. <coughs> That's what we're up against here. But there's a Hyden Plain Sight potential centripetal regional force of which everyone should be more aware. That, of course, my sub-theme for, seemingly for the talk, is water. This time I refer not to the regional drainage basins, but to an entity which since 1930, remarkably, has operated across town lines in the Hartford region, pretty much uh, within the basin uh, between the valley walls I just pointed out. That's the Metropolitan District Commissioner, MDC, which by state charter controls water supply wells, reservoirs, and reserve lands around them through the core municipalities in the Hartford region on both sides of the Connecticut River. Here, it's an emblem, uh, here is its emblem, which rather astonishingly announces regional planning, which is heresy to talk about in a lot of the, the suburban towns. Regional planning right out in the open. So far as I'm aware, with the exception of the rather short-lived um, mad idea of so solving the University of Connecticut's water shortage in stores by pumping from the West Hartford reservoirs, up, the uh, up on the West Valley Wall, uh, across the width of the valley, up the East Valley Wall, and on out to Mansfield. That was abandoned, fortunately. The MDC does not make the news much because it does its job quietly and effectively. But I wonder if, under our current circumstances, the MDC might be not more politicized, but more consciously used to direct just where regional development or redevelopment might happen. Uh, I'm going, uh, I'm thinking about going beyond such laudable, if judicially mandated, projects like the separation of storm from sanitary sewers in Connecticut. Uh, again, 
it's the kind of confetti of planning. This is uh, separating uh, sewage systems from stormwater runoff systems so that you prevent overflow into Weathersfield Cove. The, um, uh, what you should look at across the country and realize right now is that we're starting and going to be in the midst of more water wars. It's not only the Southwest where, you know, who gets the Colorado River water. It's now in the Southeast, you know, who around Atlanta gets the water that, that flows both directions. We're lucky in the Northeast to have a relatively uh, large quantity of rainfall, but we've got old cities with tough tax situations and it may not be tomorrow, but in a Hartford, which has a marginal economy, it's not such a bad idea to think that we could be in the situation that Detroit finds itself in right now. If you haven't read about it or heard about it on, on the radio, they're having to go through triage, cutting off neighborhoods, cutting off houses, because they can no longer afford to maintain the water supply system in uh, in Detroit anymore. That's not only uh, just over the horizon, it, it's coming our direction. We should be prepared to think about the institutions like the MDC as less technocratic and more politicized than we, than we currently here at least uh, typically um, treat them. Now in so saying, uh, I'm not suggesting to Chuck Sheehan, who's the executive director, who's just announced his retirement this October, that he that he should have been playing a, a role more like John the, the John Houston character in the classic old Jack Nicholson, uh, Faye Dunaway, Chinatown movie. Um, but the movie's MacGuffin, uh, the fact that water allocation controls land development, is one that should not be hidden in plain sight, uh, whether in L.A. or in... Uh, uh, Hartford. MDC owns a lot of property, in essence holding the on-off valves to develop redevelopment and development of the regions at the region's core. Short of population and business, gr growth, business growth actually beginning to happen again, the MDC should be recognized for having real allocational powers. By, by the way, it also has a flat-roofed 1977 building which is too small for MDC's needs and way too much of a Maginot Line bunker look-alike for its location opposite City Hall in the Wadsworth. What about doing a renovation to give it a, a real roof and a better chance of shedding water and uh, windowed walls as opposed to the Fuhrer bunker concrete to symbolize its centrality and the openness of a water clear future vision for the region. Speaking of growth in water, it is good to notice, if only in passing, Hartford, um, Hartford's regional entity, which is a real success, producing the former in part by taking advantage of the latter, uh, producing the success by having a good relationship to water. Goodwin College, uh, refounded only in 2004 after existing since 1962 as the Data Institute Business School, moved to a waterfront site in East Hartford shortly thereafter. They now own uh, a lot of stuff, about a mile and a half of riverfront from the bridge on down into um, Glastonbury. It serves, the, the school serves the needs of non-traditional, older, mainly minority students and has had phenomenal success and growth 
too little notice because it is half of its half-hidden location on the river but walled off from East Hartford by Route 2. Quietly, the college has purchased a lot of properties between it and Pratt and Whitney, Rentschler Field there, uh, and southward on into Glastonbury. They, they recognize the educational potential of the river and the wetland setting and the proximity to technological innovation, the um, UTC Research Center, which is going to be landed here. The word is, on Goodwin, watch this space. It's a source not only of human assets for employers in the region, but of leadership for Hartford um, and beyond. To balance out what I've noted as Hartford's singularities, let me suggest again that there is much to be gained in understanding of hidden forces in longer time frames from seeing what about this place is not different from, but instead like other cities. In talking about Hartford as a short-circuited city pair earlier, I mentioned the Virginia pair of Richmond and Norfolk, the former having in essence the same kind of location as Hartford at the head of navigation of a major river. Here's Richmond on the left, uh, Hartford at the same map scale on the right. Uh, I've rotated Richmond 90 degrees to make the comparison easier. You can do this with city after city after city, and it's fascinating to see how much is in common in the um, basic physical game board of these inland um, uh, head of navigation cities. Uh, um, several critical points of likeness pop out immediately. Both cities are on the scour side of their respective rivers, as I said, the concave side of the rivers, um, which helps keep docks from silting up if docks are present at all. We no longer have docks in Hartford. There are nooses of interstate regional highways looping the downtowns. Richmond's is tighter than Hartford's, but it's, a, it's essentially the same structure. Each with its state capital near the apex of the loop. Here's Thomas Jefferson's state capital. Ours is right, right there. They're really the, the kind of um, uh, uh, focus of the parabola, if you kind of squint and idealize those things. Um, there are major sub-regional radial roads connecting downward midway between the interstate loops. So here's Broad Street in Richmond. Here's Main Street and uh, Wethersfield Avenue in Hartford, pretty much equidistant between the, uh, the interstates. Um, rail lines, mostly just outside the interstate loops, swing in from the left and west. Rail line in Richmond, rail line in, in Hartford. Cross the sub-regional streets here, um, uh, then take off upward parallel with the rivers. There are, of course, subtle large-scale things which make a big on-the-ground difference. For example, because of the pair of large cemeteries in Richmond, uh, right along the river, Richmond's downtown expressway couldn't go along the, um, uh, along the river. What that meant is that there's a piece of Richmond which is actually on the river, and there's a stronger sense of connection to the river than, than we have. Um, at a smaller scale, it's useful to compare local street patterns and the size and shape of blocks. Richmond's fundamental city texture is more rectangular, just if you can make out, look at the streets and blocks, um, and orthogonal with more streets meeting at strict right angles. Hartford's blocks are generally much less prone to be nearly square, and furthermore, it is unpredictable what compass direction uh, the long short orientation of blocks will take in any given neighborhood. Um, again, if you can squint, you can probably see what I'm 
what I'm talking about. Um, um, the blocks overall uh, are larger than Richmond's, and to repeat, the maps are at the same scale. One more thing, note how in Hartford, but not in Richmond, there are places just at the edge of downtown where major streets split off at acute angles into two other streets. Uh, so follow Main Street down and uh, Weathersfield and, and um, uh, retreat do that. Um, Asylum in Farmington, Maple in Weathersfield, Maple in Franklin, Maine in Albany. Such differences in texture and geometry actually produce real effects, important to the experience, the character, and the economic development potential of places. Long blocks, for example, tend to produce more extreme traffic behavior. Drivers will speed up to get to the next intersection and slam on the brakes. It's kind of natural human behavior when you've got a, a gas pedal. And just watch. You'll watch at the way traffic behaves on the long face of blocks around here versus the, the short faces. It, it's, it's different behavior and it changes the character of the pedestrian experience. Smaller square blocks uh, not only tend to more uniform traffic behavior but are almost certainly easier to assemble economically and have more desirable corner lots. I'll not belabor this sort of comparative analysis. My point to repeat is that if Hartford is thought of as a game board then understanding the particularities of the game board will enable more astute decisions about where to focus interest and deploy where to deploy resources. The splitting streets I noted as appearing in Hartford but not in Richmond were emphasized in the Hartford 2010 plan on which I was the, the second in command in which we called them tridents since there is no word bident uh, as places where if strengthened one could make better connections between downtown and the first ring of Hartford neighborhoods and through those neighborhoods onto the first ring towns. It is interesting to see how in the years since that plan despite the Great Recession having occurred in exactly those years, stirrings to action are occurring in and around the Tridents. The Farmington Asylum Trident, which was the attractor, which in the 1960s was the rationalization for the mad, expensive Aetna Viaduct, is now part of the equation of the, Hartford, of the Hub of Hartford project from, 19, from 2010. In the excitement accompanying each next new thing, it is all too easy to forget that rebuilding cities requires a long attention span. Hartford's focus has moved from the West End, um, here's the I-84 coming through. That for those of you students may not know this, but um, this old set of concrete raised highways is reaching the end of its technical life. So it's going to have to be expensively rebuilt one way or another, and the issue is do you rebuild it up in the middle of the air, or do you do it on the ground, and what are the consequences for the uh, areas, including Trinity College, by the way, not so far away from here. Um, it is all too easy to forget that rebuilding cities requires a long attention span. Hartford's focus has moved from the west end to the north end with the, with the proposed new Rock Hat Stadium, but should, it should not let that project, the viaduct study and the um, Hartford 2010 study become invisible. The new ballpark. Lots of energy and angst have already been spilled on it, so much of both that it would be presumptuous of me to do more than just ask a few questions related to the lecture's mainstream, mainspring theme of forces, invisible forces on the city game board. This is especially the case because so many of the elements of the ballpark seem to be untethered 
not only the physical elements moving around the baseball park proper in various permutations and combinations, but the political and regulatory elements seem a little untethered. The City Planning and Zoning Commission voted against the plan in late September, uh, only to see the City Council approve it, uh, not even three weeks later. But if, if you look at this slide compared with the previous one, if you look here, there is no um, new building outside of the, the um, ballpark fence. If you look here, there is a major new building pointing south to, to, um, uh, to Main Street. Uh, it's a bit in flux, or untethered, as I said. Because of the overlay of I-84 on the city, the streets around and under 84 have been severed and reconnected like the coronary arteries and digestive system of some horror movie monster. Here is a 1945 map before the interstates went in, before the unnatural operations began. It shows a less abstracted city, one in which rivers still mostly flowed above ground, and highways did not yet float above the topography or, or dive into expensively carved concrete channels. Rail lines reliably marked lower contour lines since it is expensive to move freight and people uphill and downhill more than absolutely necessary. Now, um, th this was a less abstracted city in terms of the argument that I've been making here tonight about the streets and blocks telling you more about what the place is, how you behave, how to get from one place to another, uh, how to navigate from neighborhood to neighborhood. One question I have about the chosen stadium location uh, and orientation is simple. Uh, given the intention to have, it, uh, to have to move and reconnect or shut down as few streets as possible, the playing field for the new stadium has been wedged pretty tightly into the largest creatable block in the area. It's still tight, and that determines the orientation axis uh, of the diamond. That seems to be angled west-northwest, uh, while old ballparks like Fenway, uh, on which, as Kristen said, uh, I was privileged to, to work, uh, have the diamond so that the first baseline is pretty much strictly east-west, the third baseline north-south, and the line between the pitcher's mound and the plate is southwest. The result is that in summer, the late afternoon sinking sun comes over whatever seats and uh, decks are behind the left field line. The fundamental reason and intent is simple. The pitcher does not look into the setting sun when facing towards home. Now, I hope I'm missing something, but in all of the discussion of the expense of the new ballpark and the location and the connection of the new ballpark, nobody seems to have noticed that the axis, as this slide inadvertently shows, between the pitcher's mound and the diamond is pretty much towards the setting sun in summertime. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, but if I'm not, this is an extreme example of abstracted behavior not paying attention to the place uh, where you're actually proposing to build a fairly expensive piece of product on a um, pretty interesting piece of real estate. Um, two, possible, two possible stadium locations seem to have been studied. Um, my second question, after the orientation of the pitcher's mound, is why not the obvious third? 
there is a site larger than either the one studied, which were here and over here, um, immediately north of the train station. Here's the train station. Here's the site I'm, I'm talking about. It's all parking uh, right now. There is a site larger than the one studied immediately north of the train station, Hartford's once upon a time new front door, to recall the beginning of this talk, and then immediately adjacent to the work to be done for the Aetna Viaduct. There's I-84 to be rebuilt, the hub of Hartford project. The possibility of situating a new stadium above one newly rebuilt rail line from New Haven to, to Springfield. This is the line that is very expensively being double-tracked and, and rebuilt from the Sound up to uh, central Massachusetts. The possibility of situating a new stadium above one newly built re rail line from New Haven to Springfield and above a, another, possibly, the Griffin Line, to Bradley Airport with ancillary entertainment uses which would amuse and lubricate the insurance company worker bees, we're right over here, after hours, summer and winter, unlike ball fields. Um, uh, add to the cool factor, sports bar scene on Allen over here. If you Trinity students have, uh, have not discovered this and are of the requisite age, you'll find out where, where this is before too long. Uh, and be walkable from all the new downtown apartments. If they haven't studied that site, uh, I think they should. Talk about something that could be more than the sum of all the different distinct parts. One of Hartford's problems is conceiving as projects as things delimited on specific city blocks within city streets, rather than understanding that they radiate forces and interact with each other, and in the best of all possible worlds, they interact intensively with each other and become, to repeat myself, more than the sum of the parts. The basic question here, with which I'll end, comes back around to the beginning. Where would be, where could be, a new front door for the house of the city of Hartford? one connecting factually and psychologically better to the region and to Connecticut, showing off once more, showing off once and future possibilities and making a visible game board of things now too often hidden in plain sight. So it's a terrible death to be talked to death, as Mark Twain said, so I will stop there and if there are any questions, I'm happy to entertain. <laughs>